0: everyone, and welcome to the Modern Philosophy Podcast. I am your host, Ashley Hayes, and this is part two of our So You Want to Be a Poet series. I created this series because people are constantly asking me what it's like to be a poet, and I wanted to invite poets I know to add their perspectives to the conversation and to shine light on the many ways one can approach poetry as a hobby or as a living. In this episode, I talked to my longtime friend and collaborator, Marshall Grip Gilson, about how they prioritize poetry and the many ways it can inspire other artistic forms. I hope you enjoy it. Marshall Grip Gilson is a writer, programmer, educator based primarily on the internet. Marshall graduated from Morehouse College in 2009 and the Georgia Institute of Technology in 2012. Their work is multimedia and interdisciplinary, ranging from written word to performance art to electronic installation. They have appeared on stage as an actor and a poet, self-published, and been printed and Printed in literary magazines, built, dig- built digital chat books and Twitter bots, taught college courses and workshops, and have written, produced, and appeared in short films. Much of Marshall's work is fantastical, surreal, and absurdist. It confronts race, gender, mental imbalance, loneliness, existential dread, and sometimes robots. In their spare time, they enjoy board games, avoiding attention, and writing biographies in third person. Marshall, I'm so, so excited to have you here. Thank you for coming on the show.
1: Of course. My pleasure. Happy to be here.
0: So, Marshall, um, can you just tell tell my listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and how did you come to poetry? What was that journey?
1: Sure. Um, well, I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I lived there until 18 I, when I moved to Atlanta for college. Um, I stayed in Atlanta for college and then a couple years after that working and then a couple years after that in grad school and then moved back to Boston to be a computer programmer, um, which is what both of my degrees are in. Um, uh, I started writing poetry as a really, really small child. Um, I was, uh, like, depressed very young. Um, I had juvenile depression. Um, And I started writing poetry because I was having a lot of trouble communicating my emotions, and I was having a lot of trouble, like, understanding social interactions. And Mm -hmm. writing poetry was, like, a forum for me to work all of that out uh, so I could um, and did come home you know, after school and just like plant my face in a notebook and write poetry and try to work it out. Uh, And it kind of worked. Um, So I like uh, started writing like free verse poetry first, but then like around maybe sixth or seventh grade, I started like connecting that to rap and that got me into rap. Um, When I went to college, I joined a poetry club uh for the same reason because i was like wanted to know other human beings and socializing is always difficult for me um and then that just kind of like grew into being on the uh, you know national poetry slam circuit uh so i was on i don't know i lost count a, a bunch of teams i my first team was in 2008 my last team was in 2017 and then there was one year in there where i wasn't on them so that's maybe nine years eight years nine years um yeah so that's like kind of it. Like it, writing has always been the thing that I do to to make sense of my life, to find meaning. Um, and luckily i'm I've like learned that language is you know, communicative and bi-directional. so in finding ways to describe my own experience and make sense of my own life. I'm also better able to relate to other people and understand their experiences and share mine and exchange and like grow my understanding of the world.
0: Marshall. Is
1: that too much? <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> it is exactly what we need. Another okay. um, part of this podcast is also showing the ways that poetry can really change lives and like change our personhood and and how it can be the conduit for how we really connect with each other. One of the many conduits that we use as artists to connect people to each other. Um, so it's dope hearing that. I don't even think I knew that you started out as a kid. Oh, um,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was a weirdo when you met me, but please believe I was even more of a weirdo before <laughs> I started writing.
0: Same. <laughs> also, I started writing when I was like 10 and yeah. I'm like, I've just been weird my whole life and I like it here. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have like this bilateral kind of poetry home or where you were practicing poetry, right? Like you were in the South for a little bit and then you went back to the Northeast and were you out West a bit? Did I make that up?
1: No, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I the first team I was on was actually Salt Lake city um, because I was, I was actually still in college. I was still at Morehouse and I did a co-op semester in Ogden, Utah. And wow, boy, I thought I was isolated before. Um, and so every <laughs> Every weekend, I would like just drive down to Salt Lake City to go to the like one poetry show, and I ended up on their team. Um, and then I was on Atlanta uh, Java Monkey twice, Atlanta Artamuk twice, Providence, Cambridge, Boston, Boston. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, are there any how how do how does that influence your work? Did you ever pick up anything from these places that you were in?
1: Oh. Most definitely, like when I was uh, when I was in in Utah, this is going to sound really stupid. I feel stupid every time I tell this story, but it's like the honest truth. I was like, when I when I started writing, I just kind of like stream of consciousness to everything. I just like put pen to paper and wrote, and whatever came out was the writing. And so I the, that first year I was on the team in Salt Lake City, I brought this poem to my team, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, I kind of like it. It's all right, and I read it to them. and They were like, you're right, it's okay. And my coach was like, why don't you edit it? And I was like, what? You can change the words after you write them? Um, so like, yeah, I mean, the poetry slam taught me everything about writing. You know, like if not if not about writing itself and about its like centrality to understanding my life, it definitely gave me like some like practical skill in it. and taught me th- about like grammar and how to present things such that an audience will hear them. And just what mm-hmm. the process has to look like and how often you have to be doing it. Like on a similar note, one of my, one of my coaches, or I want to say it was like somebody in Atlanta, Aaron G or somebody. Um, we were like talking about our team and mm-hmm. looking at the teams who are winning, who like at the time were, I think was like Charlotte, I think was the big team that won twice in a row. Mm-hmm. And we were looking at all of those poets and just being like, wow, how do they do that? How do they do that? And one of my, my coaches says, well, yeah, the people who win though, this is what they do. This is, they do this every day. And I was so confused by that because, you know, at the, at the time I was still, I guess, in school or I was working and I was like, how could this be what you're doing every day? This is very much a hobby to me. This is a thing that I like come home and do in my personal life. So how could I find the time to do it every day? And then over the next decade, it just like kind of got more and more important to me until it, it crossed over. And now this is the, the thing I do every day, you know?
0: Yeah, I like kind of yeah. get it now.
1: I'm like on the other side of that divide, and I was like, oh yeah, you do have to do it every day.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I had that moment too because I was a competition gal, but even in like high school, and so I do a competition, and then I maybe would not rehearse until it was the next competition, yeah. and then I realized to be prepared for competition, you had to rehearse. Yeah,
1: it's it's <laughs> like <laughs> it seems like really <laughs> apparent, but that step is not obvious.
0: <laughs> no, 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 especially I, spe- now, when especially. You're a kid.
1: Yeah, and especially not like no cap. But when you're like good at it, you know, when you're talented, yeah, yeah, like like you can when you like get up on stage and like just do whatever, and people are like, "Wow, that was pretty competent." Then you're like, "Well, why do I need to practice? I'm good at it." (laughs) But it it actually does take a lot of practice, even if even and especially if you're good at it.
0: Yes, especially. And a lot of collaboration and mm-hmm. a lot of people willing to tell you that this is okay. Yeah. And it's your okayest thing yet. <laughs> and I think that that's super valuable. So, Marshall, is poetry your primary artistic outlet? Uh,
1: I don't even know how to answer that. Um I I always have trouble with this when I'm like sending a bio places to because I kind of do a lot of different stuff. Um mm-hmm. I it was while I was working a full-time tech job, poetry was my primary artistic outlet because it was kind of the thing I had time to do. Um, But then when I started like looking past my tech job and started thinking about art full-time, I kind of wanted to get bigger than that and expand more. And I think that slam poetry in particular is really good for the thing that it is, which is like a first person narrative or a first person monologue or a contained story. Mm -hmm. Um, So Anyway, long story short, I'm like kind of moving to screenwriting now, as you're aware. Um, I mm-hmm. like, uh, still write poetry. I did I did a show, uh, this earlier this month, um, where they like invited me to read poems. And I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna have to go through my vault and find some poems to read because I haven't written any in so long. And then I like looked in my Google Drive folder and realized I'd like written ten poems this year. Um, so oh, I, wow. I think that poetry still kind of has the same role in my like emotional life. And so like I, mm-hmm. when I went to that, the reason I didn't feel like I had been writing any poems is because none of the projects I'm working on are poems, you know, like I'm like working on a book and working on a pilot and working on the, None of those are poems, but I still am writing poems because it's where I go when I need to think through something. And so, you know, 2020 was a, a hard year. It was complicated it and it was right. confusing. And so I d- did end up writing poems to process that kind of without realizing it. Um, so I don't know if it's my if it's my primary. It's definitely still in there.
0: Mm, I think I needed to hear that though, even you know, as I'm in my own practice, like mm. to still go there for the reasons you went there. You know that you've been going there.
1: Yeah, I, I think, needed that. I think that I think the poetry slam, you know, kind of interfered sometimes um, because it is so it's competitive, and so there's like an incentive to write things in a way that will. Work for the game of it, and work for the competition of it, irrespective mm-hmm. of how they affect you as a human being. um I don't think those things. Like, I think there. I, I know people who, for whom that that distinction is like central to slam and ruins it. They're like, I can't mm-hmm. do it because it's com- it's commodified in this way. And it, it didn't ever feel like that to me. Like they were mutually exclusive, but it did feel like something that I had to pay attention to because if I wasn't, then it would. It's very easy to write things just for the audience and not for yourself. And I, I also kind of think that like that happens in other genres, you know, like I'm finding that For sure I'm finding that writing screenplays, like I think there's a lot of screenplay writing happening that's just kind of like this would be a great high concept movie and doesn't like really explore or unpack anything.
0: mm, mm. yeah, yeah, I think that you know as we come to our creative practices always like trying to to make sure that you're in line with your integrity and be like mm-hmm. is this thing you know making me like competition can br- literally bring out the best and the worst <laughs> in yeah. everything and um you know just valuing it for it what it is and setting just good boundaries with whatever that outlet is going to be um is it your primary is poetry art your primary source of income
1: Uh, no, um, it's my only job at the moment, but not my primary source of income, if that makes any sense. Um, I was working, I I finished grad school in 2012 and then worked for six years, five, six years. I, I guess I started in 2013 and ended in 2019. So a little bit more than six years, um, as a programmer, as a computer programmer. And I just like made a lot of money doing that. So I quit that job in 2019, um, to focus on art full time. Um, and I started by going back to school and then withdrew from school cause they were racist. Um, and so now Ooh, I'm, let's
0: talk about that. Oh <laughs> God,
1: do you want to, uh, yes. it's like, I don't know. So I, I'm like, it's my, it's my primary job. It's my primary work and I treat it that way. Like I, this is the thing I get up and do every day. I have plans mm-hmm. for like how much I'm supposed to make and produce. And like, I, I, you know, it, it is work. And like part of the reason I was able to leave my tech job is because I planned for it to be work, you know, just because even while I was working mm. my tech job. Like I was trying to grow my art and trying to be better at it and trying to like make it, make it more sustainable and make it self-sufficient. And so like the year before I quit officially was like kind of a planning year where I like took a screenwriting class, like an open enrollment screenwriting class and applied to schools and applied to grants and like tried to set myself up with the velocity that I would need to like make it my primary work. Um, but yeah the from from a monetary perspective no i'm actually still living <laughs> off savings but uh yeah i don't know we we like we like talked a little bit about this but i think it's it's hard because even even in a world where like the economy is superficially stable which it is currently mm-hmm. not art is a mm-hmm. hard thing to sell you know i think like capitalism yeah. capitalism puts a similar pressure on art as like slam does or as competition does because it is a kind of competition and to some extent you do have to like demonstrate value to somebody if they're going to pay you for it but i i heard this i heard this really good metaphor that was like it's it's really easy for artists to feel like cars on the road like vying for position you know, and mm. to some degree, that's true. We are all like trying to get ahead and we are all, all, are all trying to move forward toward our destination. But also like we are all on the road together. So if you yes. like just do something really sideways, it's going to cause problems for everybody and (laughs) also while you're like on the road jockeying with the other cars you forget that like the people who run the economy the people with real money are like not on the road with you they're not driving they're flying over you in a private jet and they really can't see your car but they can definitely see the direction the traffic is headed so you should make sure you're coordinating with everybody so the traffic looks right so i don't know i like yeah money's hard
0: that is great but that's great it's a really
1: good metaphor right
0: (laughs) it's a really good metaphor and money's hard but like you gave us some nuggets right because again that's the point of this is to showcase the different ways my journey has been kind of like up and down where like I'm a full-time artist for like months at a time Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I'm like all right you need to get a job then I'm like okay I can't keep this job because now my art's calling me back And then it's like, so I've learned to manage, manage the flow and the ebb and flow and that way. And then you sort of had like this long stretch of work so that you could then work towards like this long stretch of creating art as work or, you know, dedication. I I feel like that's the thing that a
1: lot of artists and writers in particular kind of end up doing is like having another job or another source of income that supplements it when, because art aside, like freelancing in any industry is like difficult. You have to manage your own work and it, is kind of like spurty, you know, like it happens sometimes and sometimes it doesn't.
0: And so, right. yeah.
1: I like I, I I was doing I was doing that for a long time with like just a straight up day job, but I've also met like you know, people who teach and write on the side or I met I met this one woman who was a stand-up comedian and then also like wrote computer science curriculums freelance and like between wow. those two things was making it work, but yeah.
0: Wow, which I mean, you kind of do like this computer science thing, which oh, we're going to get to because I... your mind. <laughs> the, uh, Marshall, swear to God, for a long time, I didn't know that like science oriented people could also be arts oriented people. That's so, so I think <laughs> when I met you, I was like, what? This is against everything I've ever known about was the world. Really,
1: I was really on that for a minute. It's like it's funny because my my partner actually has two degrees in music and was like a music professor for a long time and then did the opposite thing that I did and was like, the art's not making enough money. So I want to do computer science now. And it's like now working as a software developer. So we like tease each other because when we first met, I was like, yeah, STEM, screw your humanity. <laughs> right. And now I'm like a full-time artist and she works as a
0: computer. <laughs> I'm glad I've gotten to see that um, yeah. progression over the years. <laughs> so, okay. So let's, let's talk about this, right? Over, over the last, I think year or two and correct me if I'm wrong. I've seen that you have shifted some of your energy, if not more energy towards like screenwriting yeah. and then also I know you're developing your curriculum. What oh, what made you shift that energy into screenwriting and film? And I would like to hear hear about that like film school experience. Sure. For
1: you. Yeah. Um okay. Well, that's a long story. We could spend literally the entire podcast <laughs> talking about about my experience of film school, but uh, like I said, we'll bring I bring you back for that. Yeah, that's that's fine. But we like uh, in 2017, the last time I was on a poetry slam team um, was the house slam team for the second year, and we came in third nationally, which was the second year in a row that the house slam team had done that. And I was on the team both years, and so I'd like been on final stage twice in a row. And to be honest, that like kind of felt like it. Like I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to win, but not enough to like do it again. And I, and moreover, having like been on a highly competitive team two years in a row i kind of realized how much energy i would have to expend doing that mm-hmm. um and then on top of that i just kind of w- like wanted the seat to be more open i was like feeling it a little the last year i was on a team that like i maybe shouldn't have taken up that slot but mm-hmm. the the, the last in 2018 it was like definitely i like oh past that you know um i just done slam poetry for a long time and i was looking for like a new format a new venue um, I think mm-hmm, screenwriting mm-hmm. is good because it's character based. And so it like allows me to tell bigger stories than I could as a single individual in three minutes. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I also, it's like kind of been in the back of my mind for a long time, you know, like I've like pretended to write scripts when I was <laughs> in college, you know, but did the, we? Aww, yeah, did we? yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just it, like, I think it looks, it's not hard. Like I, I, I'm, I'm really strident about the idea that art is not like a superpower. It's a skill and you can develop it. Like, yes, you listener who thinks they have no artistic skill, you can develop it. It's fine. It's art. It's subjective. But also screenwriting is harder than it looks like. It looks like it should be really easy and it's not really easy. It's just like the same level of difficulty as every other art. Um, But uh, so, yeah, so I was like looking for a big, a bigger venue, a bigger format. um, And so I started Uh, thinking about screenplays um i literally just wrote one and it was okay um i submitted it a place and it was like a semi-finalist in a competition which was affirming um and then i wrote another one another short script and submitted to a competition and it won and it got produced and then i took this class at emerson and and like we're talking right now about the year where, where i'm still working you know um
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so like. So I, you
0: were doing both.
1: Correct. I was like getting up every day and doing the, this day job and then also like coming home and writing. I was like taking the time that I otherwise would have used on poetry, like my semi-professional art career time and writing short scripts in, instead. Um, and then I, so I took a class uh, at Emerson, like an open enrollment class and wrote a couple of shorts in there. And then I had this portfolio. And so I applied to a couple of grad schools um i got into one of them i got a fellowship so it was a full ride which was really exciting and the fellowship was um like they're like a diversity fellowship kind of it was like meant for a student who was like particularly interested in issues of i guess representation and and justice and like it was kind of ill defined but whatever it paid for the for the tuition um mm-hmm. and when i got there i realized that they didn't really have anything to say. And that was like kind of disappointing, because I had quit my job to go to this institution. And I moved states to go to this institution. And it wasn't even that there was like nothing to say, it was just that it was kind of just applied time, you know, and like, I think that a lot of school is sort of like that, that if you show up ready to learn something, even if there's nobody else there doing that, you can still do it just you have a room now to sit in and read the book or you have a room now Mm -hmm. to sit in and write and Mm -hmm. practice. And so to that extent, it was actually really useful that it like gave me deadlines um, and it gave me like encouragement. And I took my first semester a couple of humor classes, which was supremely helpful because I didn't think of myself as funny, which was not true. I just didn't have any practice in it. And so it gave me an excuse to practice. So like, I don't think that learning to tell jokes was something I couldn't have done, but it did give me an excuse to do it. Um, and then mm-hmm. toward the end of my first semester, they set us up with this like module class that was supposed to be about sh- uh, like a show run, running a show and running a writer's room for a show, for a TV show. Um, mm-hmm. And the person the, that they put us in the room with and the script that he gave us was just extremely problematic. It was based on this mo- this nineteen ninety maybe seven movie called Copland, mm-hmm. in which we follow a bunch of Like super bigoted cops, um, while they deal with the fallout from one of them murdering a black kid. And, like, to be clear, this is not like the hate you give where we're like talking about police brutality, but the cops are the protagonists, okay? So they're like trying to get the guy who murdered the black kid off and cover it up because they're all involved. And I was just, it was confusing and it was hurtful. And I was like, I was, I was taken aback because I, I honestly just didn't feel like the class was there for it. You know, like I don't, mm-hmm. I, like the, the response the institution kept giving me when we, like during the fallout of all of this was like, well, we're going to deal with some sensitive material. Like you have to be prepared. And my issue was really not ever that the material was sensitive, but rather that the attitudes of all of the primarily white people I was in the room with were insensitive to it. If that makes sense, Mm. you know, like I, I was the only black person. There was, uh, one, uh, Israeli man of color. There was one, uh, uh, Chinese man who's literally from Beijing. And then everybody else was white people. Like literally five of the 10 people in the class were white men, the three Mm. masks of color and then two white women. And so I I watched, we watched the original film. I read the pilot and I'm like absolutely appalled by it. There's like parts in the script that like the teacher wrote, by the way, like the script we're reading is like the script of the guy who's, they're putting us in class with. There are parts of the script that are like about the cops riding into the hood, like an army. And they like chase down this like black person in the hood and murder him in the street. And then the crowd applauds. And I was just like, what is going on here? And that's like even putting a, putting aside like some of the more subtle stuff that I felt like I saw about like the way that characters are described, you know, like like diegetic choices, where like it's not mm. even about like what the plot is, but also, but like, why are you calling this teenager sexy, you know? Um, mm. And like like, as an example, one of the things that was happening in the plot was one of the cops was like sleeping with this like, like young Latina girl from the hood and pumping her for information. And I'm like, that's assault. Okay. If a cop is sleeping with an informant, that's like a huge conflict of interest. It's problematic. It's assault. And like, it's one thing for the script to not deal with that. But for me to say that in class and then nobody goes, yeah, that is problematic.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like that's what really,
1: really ran me up against it. So anyway, uh, the advice I got honestly from everybody in my, my life was like, give it a second, Marshall. You don't, you don't, you don't know that this is going to be, maybe the the teacher really did think through this. Maybe they have a plan for how they're going to deal with all of this. So I did, you know, I like did all the work. I came prepared to talk and nope. The conversation was exactly what I expected it to be. And so I like had to say all that in class kind of. And uh, it like was freaking me out because again, I'm sitting in a room full of people who like, like don't hear that, (laughs) you know, like don't hear that. Some of this stuff is like deeply problematic. And the teacher storms out like he he literally gets up. He's like, well, we'll see what the head of the school has to say about this and walks out in the middle of the class, leaving literally all 10 of us sitting there alone.
0: Yeah,
1: which bugs me out. I'm like, like I said, I could talk about this for literally a year, but uh, it bugged me out because at the beginning of class, he literally started the class by saying, this is my script. But, you know, I'm not worried about criticism. I've heard every criticism. So don't feel like you have to be gentle. And I was like, okay, well, good. Because I feel like it's bigoted and then he stormed out on it. So anyway, that the, that's like not, I didn't like leave because of that incident, but that's like, yeah. it was kind of like the big tipping point, you know, like I, there was a lot of other stuff in my experience at that institution that was like very similar or it was like the, the impetus for racism, The the, you know, response to racism was being put on me as like the one black person in the class. And I kind of didn't. I I didn't like it didn't matter enough to me, you know, like I, I was kind of getting Mm. something. I was kind of getting something out of it, but it was also kind of just applied time. And I didn't go to the institution to like fix their racism. I went to the institution to learn about screenwriting. And if trying to fix their racism was interfering with me learning about screenwriting, then I couldn't do it. And so I withdrew. But there's like so much stuff. I could literally, I have this fantasy of like confronting them about it. Which I like yeah. I like don't because I, there's nothing that could there's no good that could come of it, you know. Like either they're going to recognize their complicity in it or they're not. And if they were, they would have done it while I was there. So I don't really feel like there's any good that could come out of it. But I have this fantasy of confronting them and just every time they like try to disagree, I tell them a different anecdote of one of them being racist. Because it was just like that every day, like every single day somebody was saying something. Like the first time I I showed up to I showed up to the campus in a dress the head of this of the program looks at me and says looking very trans today i'm like what does that mean man what does that mean am what I,
0: does that mean am
1: i was like what what does that mean what do you think it look it, it means to look trans a and b does looking trans factor on my identity am i more trans today than i was yesterday and c why do you think i care
0: <laughs> And like is this why your did you business? even, like, did you even comment business? on
1: it for what reason you know i like honestly I'm like you're like getting me riled up but I like remember I remember doing this at like my day job at like the at my programming job I like showed up in a dress and this guy that I like literally don't know it's kind of a big company he wasn't on my team it was just like you look beautiful today and I'm like I like I know you mean that in your head as a compliment but really it's not like you didn't, you don't say, I don't know you. So you wouldn't have said that to me if you saw me standing here in like jeans and a t shirt, which means that mm-hmm. really all you're saying is, I noticed that you are defying my expectations. I like, mm. oh man, there's with this book I read this year that points out that a, a lot of white people in particular imagine that slurs are kind of like bad words. They're words that you don't want to say, they're mean words, they make people feel bad. And like that's kind of true, but it's also, not the whole story. Like the, the 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 dangerous part about slurs is that they draw on social structures to harm yes. somebody. You know, like yes, like calling somebody a like a slur is only a problematic problem if it like if it like grounds them in the reality that this social difference could be the end of their life or it could be like actually interruptive to them. You know, it's like why slurs on white people don't land. It's because that structure doesn't exist. Like it's not threatening in any actual way. And so a lot of like what I f- felt like I experienced was that, you know, it was like stuff that like you didn't call me the slur, but the, this interaction still was grounded very heavily in the social power dynamic, you know, and like the power mm. differential between us. Anyway, I, I, I'm like this is my life, you know. I'm like unpacking it all the time. I don't, like, don't have any concrete answers about it.
0: Yeah, but I mean, <sighs> you know, we're we're black in art, you know, and, yeah. and being black in art and academia is like honestly, it's a monster. I I just I try to pretend doesn't exist yeah. because it is such a big monster and it's so much energy to try to slay racism in yes. academia. And it's like, why is this my job? Exactly. <laughs> now I'm yes. exhausted of this Literally. and now I'm going to go make my art outside of academia. Only for you to tell me that it's less valid. Outside of this space, I was, but... <laughs> Oh
1: my God. I was, I was in uh, one of the last classes I, I was taking. in my second and final semester was a teaching practicum. I was like preparing myself to teach the next semester and like writing syllabuses and writing curricula and at the same time, like, we were dealing with the fallout from this, like, super racist professor. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, we sat down in a meeting. Like, first of all, let me just say that the institutional response to it was immediate and panicky. Like, this happened, and I literally got an email that night that was like, can you sit down with four of us tomorrow? And I'm like, absolutely not. I'm, like, not sitting down one-on-one with four of my bosses. What? no yeah but no it, that meeting did eventually happen and by the time it happened it had ballooned to like six people or seven people and in that meeting i said directly to all of them this is really problematic i'm kind of hurt by it but also i'm like more worried that this is just like a pattern and i don't want it to like, continue happening but i also like, don't want this to turn into a curriculum design project for me because i feel like that's a, a thing that happens and a thing that specifically happened at this institution was when something went wrong they'd go okay well you saw it go wrong so teach us how to fix it and i'm so like so you
0: teach it exactly
1: right? and i'm like I, no i don't want to do that i'm not the are you paying me to design the curriculum i'm not that's not what i'm here for but that's exactly what it turned into you know and so by the time i was leaving they were like sending me email, emails like complaining that i hadn't produced enough research for them and i'm like i don't even i don't even know what that means like like what research do you like what research do you think I'm going to show you that's going to make you understand why that was problematic? Like yeah. what research do I have to show you that makes you understand that asking me for research is problematic?
0: Right. Cause and, what <laughs> research have you done?
1: Yeah. That's like, that's what really messed me up is I was like, why do I have to do the research? I'm the only one who saw it. Like, just, but anyway, so I say all that to say, I say all that to say like part of the reason I'm like teaching workshops and teaching classes now independently is that is like, I, saw academia and i was like this is terrible but i also don't want to stop learning i don't want to stop writing and i don't want to not teach just because you guys couldn't handle me there and so i like spun it up myself construct that school
0: okay yeah and i and so let's talk about this so you have spun it up yourself and you have now started your own um learning environment which of course I think is awesome cuz this yeah. is mine. Yeah. <laughs> um you want to talk a little bit about I that? I would
1: love to. Yeah. I so I when I was uh I was the during doing that teaching practicum in my last semester and part of it was supposed to be teaching a workshop to the uh the undergrads. Mm-hmm. Um uh the workshop I designed was called the short script as a form poem, which kind of gets at my uh understanding of the intersection between screenwriting and poetry. I think you actually you actually took one version of it. But I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. So I was like starting to develop this. And then COVID happened and also I realized I was at my wits' end with them. And those two things are not unre- not are like connected, you know? And so um I withdrew, but not before having the realization that COVID was going to like severely interrupt in-person learning. And my mm-hmm. workshop was planned to be like three hours on a Saturday in a room, which I couldn't do anymore. And so I started thinking about uh, ways to do this kind of education and do this kind of like, um, create this kind of learning environment for people marginalized from academia, but without a physical presence. And lucky me, mm-hmm. I'm a computer programmer. So Yay! I started, uh, yeah, I started spinning up um, web forums and teaching workshops in them. And I taught maybe four or five over the course of last year. And then that was all in preparation for teaching full-length courses. So I'm actually like about to start next week the first two courses of Construct College of Creative Pedagogy, which is what I call it. Um, one of them is a, a, a writing class, like just a creative writing class, uh, and one of them is a digital media literacy class where we're going to like read some some technical articles and read about the singularity and read about bots. And stuff.
0: I love it. I love it. Yeah. I would have taken it, but <laughs> February is crazy, but I yeah. love it and I try to take your classes whenever I can. Yeah, um so you all um we'll get to where you can find Marshall, but real quick, so you are doing this cool thing where like you're putting your goals on a public forum which is one of the most terrifying things to me. Mine are confined to like my Post-it notes yes. app and my dry erase board in my room. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you are not, you are adding an extra layer of accountability by posting your art goals as Twitter. Yeah. Why is it important for you to be transparent about that? Sure. It, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's two parts to it. The, the first one is just, uh, like you said, it's accountability and particularly having it public, you know, makes me feel like I have to get the stuff done I'm I've I started doing it um uh this month I, I started at the end of last month and I started doing it daily this month um it's so it's it's partially just because it yeah it like motivates me and it keeps me accountable to what I said I was going to do you know if at the beginning of the month I said I was going to do these six things then if at the end of the month I didn't do those six things like I need to understand why it's not it's not necessarily that I'm like Wrong or bad or should have done them and I didn't, but I like I can't I can't track it unless I have the availability avail, availability of that data, um, mm-hmm. and I think that it the other part is that I it's I, I hope it's useful to other people. Um, I had a, a friend of mine I, I I've I've like kind of been doing similar things to this like posting publicly about my art progress for many 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 years, and mm-hmm. so when I was prepping for. I don't even remember. I don't even remember some, comp- some poetry competition. You know, I was, I like realized I had a set of stuff to be done. Um, and started doing this, started being like, okay, here are my goals for October. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And then every day I could look at the that list of goals and say, how close am I to them? Uh, how much of it have I done? What do I have left to do? Um, and at the end of the, at the end of the month, um, look back on it and, I I started posting those on social media and people started reacting to them and doing them also. And it was mostly my friends. My social media following is not really big. But I also think that that kind of communal benefit and communal support um, is important and will, like, improve our artistic goals as, like, a movement as opposed to as individuals. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the thing you're talking about is really real. Like, people don't see the process, you know. They'd see, like... I, my script won a competition. And so that's it. It's like a, a, a great writer, but actually great writing is mostly daily editing and that's tedious. And so to see how, like, I, I go from uh, you know, zero from nothing from like a vague plan and a goal to like an actual script or an actual project or a book, um, I hope like demystifies the process for people who are struggling with that on their own. People who want that mm. kind of um, that kind of process, um, but I also just think that yeah, like it, like I said, dem- it demystifies it. I heard a conversation between a couple of my poetry teammates years ago, where one of them said, "I feel like there are two kinds of writers. There are writers who just like work every day and are really diligent and deuced and like and like really grind it, and that's how they come up with great stuff. And then there are people who are just like on some other shit, and they're like." brains do that and then they write it down and the other my other teammate responded yeah but the thing you don't see is that second category is really the same as the first one like the people who like look to you like they're just on something else and like you can't figure out how they came up from with it it's like probably just from daily writing it's probably just from practicing and so like that's kind of i don't know that's kind of where I, where i feel i am you know like i, I like i like get a, a lot of praise and i don't say that to aggrandize myself but it just kind of oh, yes. confuses me because it doesn't feel like that to me you know it doesn't feel like i'm a genius who just has a lightning bolt strike them it feels like well yeah because i did it every day for the last three months
0: <laughs> yeah so. i um i actually just saw a quote by tony morrison which i hadn't seen by her and she said i don't write every day but i think every day yeah And that is me, you know, I have the same thing where people are like, you know, how'd you do this? And how'd you do this? And, you know, you just did the thing. And I'm like, well, I've thought about it for months. (laughs) Like, I think I messaged you like eight months before a project when I'm just like, I think I'm going to do this. thing, And I I just think, I just think and think and think so that when it's time to do, it demystifies the doing to me, you know, just sort of evaluating it.
1: Somebody told me they heard Michaela Cole saying a similar thing about I may destroy you. It's like didn't know how it was going to happen at first, but they signed up and they got a deadline, and then they started writing them, and they had to be done when they were done, and so they did it, you know. And that's like kind of, kind of what it boils down to. And that's that's like also I, I think why I'm doing these goals is like partially because accountability, and I think it'll be help help people and transparency and demystifying, and also partially because I just have a lot to do, and I needed to look at it all and figure out when it was all going to get done. And I was struggling with this a little bit last year, partially, I think, because, you know, the pandemic was confusing everybody and confusing everybody's schedules and making it hard to concentrate and plan Um, that I was uh, like over scheduling or I would like look at all the stuff I had to do and just do today whatever feels interesting to me. And that's Mm -hmm. often good enough, you know, like I often find that I have enough bandwidth enough time in the day that if I just like do what feels good and natural, I will get to the point that I'm trying to get to. But Mm -hmm. looking at 2021, it felt like there were a lot of different things, a lot of different goals that I was trying to accomplish and a lot of different targets I was trying to hit in like a very coordinated, synchronized order that I wasn't going to be able to do unless I planned it. And so that's like also partially where this came from is I was... I literally opened a Google doc and made a list of everything I was trying to finish in 2021, everything I was trying to do in 2021 and broke it up. Like I I have said before to people that the process of creating any project, but a writing project feels to me like a process of going from very general to very specific. So I like start with the vague notion that I want to write a TV show And then, okay, well, what does that mean? I have to have a premise for it, so I'll like come up with a a log line. Okay, now I have that, and that's a lot—that's good, but that's still not the same as a script. So I break it down a little bit more. Like, well, okay, what would it entail to tell this plot? Who are the characters? What do they do? What are the plot points? Okay, that's good. I have an outline now, but that's still not the same as a script. So I guess I have to make it a little bit more specific. And like, what are the scenes actually in this thing? And then I've got out uh, outline of the scenes, but okay, that's still not the script. So I make it a little bit more specific, and I actually write the scene. And okay, the scene's okay, but this sentence doesn't make a lot of sense because it doesn't really relate to the theme at The three levels up, and so then I'm tweaking the sentence, and all of those steps to me feel like writing. You know, like I'm producing a different. They're all the words, exactly. I'm producing a different piece of text for each of them, but not all of them is like diving straight into the script and typing words in it. Um, and so I, yeah, I I don't know. I like that that Toni Morrison quote really hits it on the head. Is like thinking is writing too, because some of that stuff, I didn't, I didn't need to move tokens around on the page if I like was. You know, in deep thought about what the plot's going to be. You know, I, mm. I I I think sometimes about coding and how uh, I, I use this really arcane text editor for actually both programming and for writing called Vim, and it's weird and it's like at the command line and it's like kind of like difficult when you first start it, but what somebody pointed out to me is that usually the hold up, the hold up in programming but in writing too is not how fast you can type the words but rather how fast you know which words to type
0: and Mm -hmm. so like the tool
1: doesn't matter as much as you think it does because Mm -hmm. yeah that's not that's not usually the critical path so like figuring out which words to type is often something i can do in my head which is kind of funny because i'll then lie around the house like staring at the ceiling and my partner's like are you okay and i'm like yeah i'm working."
0: I think I tweeted something. I'm like, half of my creative life is sitting on my couch staring at guys' grocery games (laughs) trying to figure out, work out in my head, what the heck, or just staring into space. And my mom always says this. She's like, you're always like daydreaming and thinking. I'm like, yeah, so that when I get to the computer, you know, the thing is there.
1: Yeah. this line in, in Community where Donald Glover's character, somebody's like, harassing Donald Glover's character. And he's like, no, I want to be smart so I can do nothing or have a job that looks from a distance like I do nothing. So I feel <laughs> all the time. So I'm like, yeah, kind of.
0: Yeah, kind of. Exactly that. Like, artists don't do anything. Smoke tweets. And I'm um, like, you know, there are other things. Yeah. So, Marshall, okay, I'm going to make this segment because Please. I've been wanting to for a long time. <laughs> So Marshall and I are working on a TV show together and I'm so excited about it. Um, So I'm going to say we are working on it and there will be like, you'll learn a lot more about the projects that we're doing together. You all know I'm starting Philosophy Media Group because I'm sort of shifting into production. But Marshall is going to be, Marshall has been really one of my, my, Great collaborators this year, and so I'm really excited about this year. Yeah. And, and Marshall, what are you looking forward to, and what are you most proud of so far?
1: Uh, from in uh, on the year or on the script?
0: Well, I guess both. Oh, okay. <laughs> um. Uh.
1: I'm. Uh, I'm just glad that I like started the year running. Um. I think 2021 is going to be hard. Um. Yeah. And not 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 even just for me personally, just kind of for the continent, um, I th- I think that mm-hmm. we have a lot of societal problems that we're yep. straight up not dealing with, and it really worries me. Um, I think that a lot of people have died in the last year, and I think that a lot more are probably going to die in the year to come, and I think it's going to be hard on all of us. I think that COVID is, like, it's a trauma that we're not processing yet because we're still in the middle of it.
0: It's still in it, yeah. yeah,
1: so I'm, like, just, I'm just happy that I'm, I'm, like safe and healthy and able to write at all, um, I think that I did an okay job on my on my January goals. Uh there's a couple things that took me a little bit longer than I expected, but uh, on on the whole, I'm just like I'm, I'm just grateful to still be capable of doing the things that I want to do, which is not a given, you know. Um, and on the script, uh, mm-hmm. I'm honestly just super excited about the prospect of producing it. <laughs> like I'm, I wanted to. Be intelligent. The, the the MFA program I enrolled in actually like at, forced me to answer this question because I was like, I want to be a screenwriter, and they were like, right, right, right. But what do you want to write? And I was like, screenplays. And so they <laughs> they like their their program was split between film and TV. And so thinking mm-hmm. about that made me realize that I'm actually like way more interested in episodic content than I am in like feature films. Um mm-hmm. so, like the idea that that could be happening, that we like could be starting one, that we could be producing it, that we could be, you know like seeing it on screen is very exciting. um but the but the pilot I wrote last year uh, won an award and got a table read, which was super which exciting great. too, um, to it's just great. like see human beings playing the characters and delivering the lines and hearing their interpretations of them. um, but it, it would be super, super cool to see it produced. so i really I really hope we can work that out. i'm I'm optimistic.
0: I'm optimistic too. Um, and the Hazes Higher Landing community will be an active part of this. So you all make sure you tune into the HHL pages. Um, Marshall, I would be remiss if I didn't at least offer you the microphone for for art uses. <laughs> um, this oh. has been one of my favorite interviews. This is one of my favorite series. Mm-hmm. Um, because one, I just talk to my friends generally, and you know. I know that there are people who are friends with people they don't like, but I actually like my friends a lot. (laughs) And so um, this is one of my favorite series. And I know that this interview people are going to listen to over and over and share. But would you like to share a piece of your art?
1: Sure. Uh, Let me me just wrap because that's always quick. Yes. I wake up in a grave daily and dig back to the surface. Purchase six packs of detergent. The scourge is all in my nervous system. Words of wisdom I learned from dingbats and insurgents. And now I'm left to ringmaster the circus. The future only arrives by antenna. I adjust them to find me gestation to decide if I'm destined for greatness or a psychiatry patient. You might have heard me say this, but lately my mind has been racing, trying to survive and stay safe even when the state is violently racist. If they break down the door and kill me in my sleep, they're sowing a trillion seeds and they will feel me when they reap. We're peeling back the sheets to see what's really underneath because they don't seriously want to beef. They already fearin' what we teach. We're holding up the mirror. They see the appearance of the beast with syrup on its cheek and pieces of our lyrics in its teeth. How is this materially different from tyranny? Not everything is what it appears to be. We're running interference until the reinforcements arrive. Tired of distortion and lies, we're forging a sword and the sky gets enormous and we won't melt it back down until we're sure we'll survive. No more performing, no more borders, no more fake mourning who's died, no more following orders. The time has come now for the poor to arise. If you or your loved ones suffer from any one of these symptoms, then please call the number below to donate something to the Fund for the Victims. I know it's a system, but someone's making all these fucking decisions, and when no one seems to like them, I gotta wonder just who was it that picked them. I studied the vision. They want to make this whole country a prison to give subsidies to the money and punishment to anybody who isn't. They swore it was beautiful weather and they knew that I could just lose the sweater. Taught me the calculus. The next surprise, I put two and two together. Put the constitution right through a shredder. They learned to perform all the same illusions, but better. They're switching the game, removing the meta, the movements. Now get up. Excuse if I ruin the setup. I never ruin a punchline. I think we're through with the fun times. I stick and move on the one times. You need to move to the front line. We do the show once and it's run live. The can is to stop it. The plans that can stop it. We got them. Just hand me your thumb drive. Coming untied. We ride out at sunrise. Make sure that you're packed. Ain't no reversing and no turning back when they're turning the hearse to a merciful act. They take and they take and I'm feeling a lot like a priest losing faith in the church. Complain every day about how thankless they work and then fall back asleep in a blanket of dirt like you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: i was losing my shit <laughs> out of
1: control
0: you had a second person who, to come on here and rap yeah my creative director rap last season and so i think we're gonna release a mixtape at some point so that we can raise money for this show
1: yo on the low low this is like the same as the poetry is like i feel like i haven't been rapping because i haven't been focusing on it and then i looked up and i was like oh i have an ep here so shout out to the ep and the chapbook i didn't know i was writing <laughs>
0: <laughs> Shout out to that, yo. Don't you love it when that happens, yeah, yo? I am very much a fan, very much still into all the work you put out. So glad to work with you, Marshall. Thank you for coming uh, to Hayes yeah, Higher oh, Learning. Thank you for having me. Um, Marshall, where can people find you? Where can they find Construct School and your goals and all of this public stuff? So
1: much stuff. Okay, well, I am on Twitter, twitter.com slash glass eyeballs. I am on Instagram as auto.antonym. I am on SoundCloud as Glass Eyeballs and the concept band I'm in with my partner is on SoundCloud at Curve Breakers. Uh, construct.school is the website for the classes that I'm teaching. though um, The enrollment is closed at the moment. Uh, what else? Maybe that's it. Glass oh, GlassEyeballs.com. Yeah, I have a mailing list actually and right now it's on MailChimp but one of my art goals for February is to migrate it from MailChimp something else so that I can actually start publishing on it because at the moment, it's like kind of a what have I been up to newsletter and starting next month, I'm going to try to use it to actually send people pieces of my art. So if you want my art in your email inbox, go to Glass Eyeballs and sign up for my mailing list.
0: As you all can see, I had so much fun talking with Marshall. Please be sure to follow them and to support all of their work. Remember to like and subscribe to the Modern Philosophy podcast on your favorite podcast app. Please leave us a review on the Apple podcast app or on Spotify. You can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash Ashley Hayes, no dash. And remember to follow us on Instagram. That's at Modern Philosophy. That's modern with an E on the end. Thank you all so much for tuning into the Modern Philosophy Podcast, where together we are learning better, doing better, and being better. I'll see y'all next time.